welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Just after signing a $1.3 trillion budget at the White House last week, reporters asked President Trump if he would like to testify in Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. Mr. President, would you still like to testify to Special Counsel Robert Mueller, sir? Thank you. I would like to. For more on this story, we're joined now by Greg Farrell, Bloomberg News investigative legal reporter. Uh, and uh, Greg, um, the president says he would like to, but it's a it's a it's a lot of distance between uh, liking to and actually doing it. What's your latest reporting on this? story uh, yesterday afternoon about how negotiations between Trump's legal team, um, what's left of it, and uh, the Mueller camp are continuing around this. As you know, uh, uh, Trump's lead outside lawyer, John John Dowd, quit um, uh, last week in part over the issue of whether or not the president should sit down with uh, special counsel Robert Mueller. And uh, there's a real you know, there's, there's, this happens a lot in legal issues where there's a real divergence or a real contradiction between what the legally proper, the smartest legal move to take and what, you know, what the optics of that are going to be. Uh, John Dowd recommended against in any way, shape, or form a meeting with Mueller um, because any kind of slip-up or, 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 you know, misstatement or <laughs> exaggeration, uh, you know, could be construed uh, as, uh, you know, lying. And um, uh, But I think the president understands that if he doesn't, if he refuses to sit down with Mueller, it will look bad. So there's this sort of built-in contradiction between, you know, the optics of the White House wanting to you know, appear like they're cooperating fully and wanting to let be known they have nothing to be afraid of because, as the president has said, he's done nothing wrong. And the legal imperative of protecting your client. Um, so, Greg, you know, Trump, yep. you had mentioned that, uh, you know, the shrinking legal team. So Trump doesn't have a white collar or a government ex- investigations lawyer who's experienced in dealing with this type of high-profile, very sensitive investigation interview and the ramifications. How much of a problem is that for him? Well, they say it's not much of a problem because they've a, a big team of people under Jay Sekulow uh, and some support from, uh, you know, the Kazowitz Law Firm, which is back. But uh, there's two, two issues for them. One, um, uh, you know, uh, they, it would help to have someone who specializes in criminal white-collar defense out front, and they don't have that now. Uh, Kazowitz is a superb lawyer, but he's a civil lawyer. Um, uh, and at the same time, um, you know, they realize from a public relations point of view, it doesn't look good for the story to be out there that the president is underrepresented by a lawyer. So I think their plan is to to bring someone in. They don't need someone tomorrow or by Monday, but over the next few weeks, they want to bring someone in who sort of plugs that hole. You know, if you will, baseball starting. They need a first baseman, someone who they can put in that spot, um, even though they say they're fine for now. Why has uh, the team had such a hard time putting the rest of the team well, together? Well, it's a uh, another contradiction here. One, uh, most lawyers in general would like kill for the opportunity to represent the president of the United States in a major constitutional issue. Um, Trump, however, and this uh, is uh, proving to be, if not toxic, uh, a lot of you know bold-faced name lawyers in Washington are avoiding him. 
some of this is in part is, I think, political, uh, that they don't necessarily agree with him. But I think more importantly is he's a very difficult client. You know, you can tell him and try to come up with a strategy of what, you know, should be done, and he'll go off and do his own thing. He'll undercut himself sometimes by, by giving an interview or a tweet that sort of uh, uh, conflicts with what the legal advice is. That's one of the reasons Mark Kazowitz left last summer is that um, – Reportedly, he was cut out of the decision-making process, you know, intentionally shut out of what the president's response was to a report that his son, Don Jr., met with some Russians uh, at the Trump Tower to talk about dirt for Hillary. And, um, you know, he's just a difficult client. Uh, And, Greg, does he – do you think he has any – idea. He's used to civil litigation in New York. How, any idea how an interview with these experienced, aggressive, well-prepared lawyers on Mueller's team or Mueller himself would be like? Right. I, I, this is something uh, I think the president's never been up against, because as you point out, yes, he's a veteran of you know, litigation, litigation wars in New York over real estate, etc. Um, and he's prone to exaggeration because that's part of the business. He's uh, successful in real estate in part because of his, uh, he's a good talker, he sells well. Um, that's a compliment. Um, but you're entering a world where any false statement is potentially like a criminal act. So that's what John Dowd, his lawyer, was, I'm sure, concerned about. And, uh, you know, and again, uh, part of uh, Trump's particular, you know, charisma is that he's irrepressible. He goes off and says things. Uh, he doesn't stay to the script. Um, and uh, that's, for the first time, he's in a dangerous place with that. Nightmare for script. lawyers. Yeah. Well, I want that, to, uh, a actually, nightmare for his lawyers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. exactly. But let me, but just let me go. Let me question this premise. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. He, the president, has a reputation for being undisciplined and tweeting and everything else. But he is, seems to have shown pretty strong discipline in this controversy over Stormy Daniels. Yes, uh, but you know that's you know for a few days. I think we've we've seen you know John Kelly has been uh, you know. Uh, has had success and then lack of success starting last summer and getting the president's stay off of Twitter, and then it changes. So maybe true. Maybe he's suddenly gotten religion. Maybe at his age, he's suddenly, you know, uh, has become the man that, you know, his previous lawyers want him to be. But, you know, let's see as time <laughs> passes. Uh, it's been one week. Uh, so Well, anyway. maybe he understands the stakes uh, with Mueller, and that's, so that, that's why I was asking. I, you know, I, I yes. still I still think, you know, he's facing these lawyers and he has a tendency to fill in the gaps and to keep talking. And lawyers love that. Right. Opposition lawyers, your own lawyer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, he loves to fill a vacuum. He uh, you know, clearly thrives on being the star of the show. And that's not what you want, uh, you know, in that type of uh, uh, circumstance. You want someone who sticks to the script keeps it almost monosyllabic. That's what the negotiation uh, right now is about, is like the different areas that Mueller okay. wants to talk about. Got it. All right, Greg Farrell, Bloomberg News investigative legal reporter. Thank you so much. Now let's take a look at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court took its second look at partisan gerrymandering this term, but the second look doesn't seem to have clarified the issue or the solution for the justices. The justices expressed broad concerns about a Maryland congressional district that Democrats acknowledge was drawn to oust a GOP lawmaker. The solution was far from clear. Joining me is one of our country's leading experts on election law, Rick Hassan, a professor at UC Irvine and the author of The Justice of Contradictions, 
Antonin Scalia and the politics of disruption. Rick, the court has never struck down a voting map for being so partisan it violates the Constitution. Do the justices at least agree that extreme partisan gerrymandering is a violation of the Constitution? I think they actually do agree on that point, and you'd think that that would settle it. But uh, back in 2004, Justice Scalia wrote a plurality opinion in a case called Veith versus Jubelerer involving Pennsylvania's redistricting, where he said, uh, even if it's unconstitutional, and we'll assume that it is, the question is whether or not the courts have any power to uh, rein it in. Are there any judicially manageable standards to know when taking partisanship into account and drawing district lines is too much. And it was very clear from the argument yesterday in the Maryland gerrymandering case that the court is still struggling with that question. Is there a standard that the court can enunciate that could actually help to decide when too much partisanship comes into play in these drawing of district lines? Why is partisan gerrymandering different from racial gerrymandering in this respect? Why can they they regulate one but not the other? It's a great question. And so when it comes to racial gerrymandering, um, the standard there is one of uh, simply making race the predominant factor in drawing district lines. And the court says that that violates equal protection clause. It sends a message that you're separating voters on the basis of race. And this is a pernicious message. That's the theory of a case called Shaw versus Reno. And it's been from the 1990s. It's been carried through today. Um, although some of the justices have advanced an argument that if you make race the sole motivator, if you make party partisanship the sole motivator or the main motivator in drawing district lines, that's unconstitutional. The court in Veith rejected that standard. Justice Kennedy, who's the fifth vote, rejected that standard and rejected a similar standard in a 2006 case coming out of Texas. So it's got to be something different than that. Um, it could be something like vote dilution, which we see in the voting rights context, except diluting the votes of Democrats or Republicans. But they're not exactly clear on how you would draw the line. And, and one of the things Justice Breyer floated in argument yesterday is they've got two or three cases involving these issues. Maybe they should just hear them again next term, bring in all the lawyers from all the cases, put it on a blackboard and try and sort it out and figure out, is there a holy grail? Is there a standard they could apply for all of these cases that's actually going to work? And a lot of the justices expressed both uh, uncomfortableness with what Maryland had done in drawing this congressional district to favor Democrats and a lack of comfort with any standard that they can come up with to say what the general rule should be. Well, do you think kicking the can or the case down the road is going to help them any? Well, it might help uh, Justice Breyer keep Justice Kennedy on the court. Uh, some people ah. were suggesting that maybe this was a way to say, you know, Kennedy is seen as the likely swing voter here. This is one of his signature issues where he's been debating the issue uh, with himself for the last decade or so. And, uh, you know, if you set the case for argument in the fall, maybe Kennedy sticks around, you know, amid all of these retirement rumors. So there were there was a case argued about Maryland this week and then Wisconsin before. Is Justice Kennedy the swing vote in both those cases? And the way one case goes, is that the way the other case will go? Well, the the cases differ in four different ways. Uh, one is that one involves Democrats doing the gerrymandering; the other involves Republicans. That shouldn't sway sway the difference. Uh, one involves congressional districts, and the other involves state legislative districts. Uh, one involves a challenge to the entire map; the other involves a challenge to just a single district. And um, uh, the uh, uh, the last 
difference is that one involves the theory under the Equal Protection Clause, the other under the First Amendment. These all kind of offer different ways for Justice Kennedy, if he's a swing voter, to go and decide these cases. We just don't know. We didn't know why the court said argument for in the second case, as a, the Maryland case, as opposed to just holding it for the Wisconsin case. The answer seems to be, after argument, that the justices are just struggling with very basic principles as to whether and how they're going to address any of these issues. It's, it, it was, uh, uh, if you look at the headlines yesterday uh, describing the oral argument, befuddlement, frustration, uh, the court really seems like it's struggling and does not know what to do. And it's not normally what you see coming out of a Supreme Court argument. So, Rick, what's your, what's your final take? Do, will they come out with, it, with a decision one way or the other? Will they, uh, you know, kick it to the next term? Or, or what, what's your take? Well, I, I don't have a good sense after the argument. Nothing would surprise me. That is, the, there, there are very easy ways for them to kick, this, to kick the Maryland case in particular because it's up on a preliminary injunction and they could just postpone it for a few years. But if Kennedy's thinking about leaving the court in the next few years and he's the swing vote, that should put some pressure uh, on the court to actually decide the issue this term. But we'll find out in June. So um, just briefly, we have about 30 seconds. So the midterm elections will definitely be held using the maps that may later be determined to be unconstitutional, perhaps. That is, seems very likely. There was a whole discussion at the beginning of the argument yesterday about whether, given that this is up under preliminary injunction, is it too late for a remedy in 2018? The lawyer said no, but Justice Kennedy said, oh, come on, uh, candidates are already running. So <laughs> it does not seem likely that anything's going to change for 2018. Thank you, Rick. That's Rick Hassan, professor at UC Irvine. His book is The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.